Interlibrary Loan The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood Hello everyone and welcome back to Interlibrary Loan, the show where a couple of friends get together, read a book that's worth discussing, and then discuss it. Uh, so if you weren't listening uh, for our previous section, we just finished David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, and we are now moving on to our next book, which is Margaret Atwood's modern classic, The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, and this is a book that we chose that I think is going to be just as relevant and apt as our previous one, and I'm ex- excited to jump right into it. And full of great comic relief, isn't that right, Katie? <laughs> well, maybe not so much the comic relief. Uh, oh, you mean there aren't lots of great comic relief sh- uh, characters in the great vein of Shakespeare? We don't get the the grave digger drunkenly telling us about uh, about various uh, uh, skeletons and stuff. At least not yet, huh? I mean, not quite as much. Uh, we'll just have to see as we as we go through. All right. If you're new to the podcast, I'm Sky, and I'm Katie. Uh, and our third host, Lauren, uh, unfortunately couldn't record with us tonight. Um, she got held up at work, uh, which, hey, sometimes that happens. Uh, but she'll be back next week. Um, and today we are discussing the first three sections of The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, if you're reading along with the Anchor paperback version that was the bestseller on Amazon a couple weeks ago, uh, you'll find that uh, we're reading to page 40. Uh, but this is the first three sections, Night, Shopping and night. Um, so, uh, if you've been reading along with us, then you know what we are up against. It is the Republic of Gilead. Right. And so, this book kind of jumps in and immerses you straight away and doesn't really give a whole lot of uh, context or anything. Um, bits about Gilead are kind of peppered throughout uh, from the narrator who in the first section we don't even really learn her name Um, no we still I mean I know that you know the narrator's name Katie uh but like at this point in the narrative like up to page 40 the narrator's name has not been announced right exactly Uh, we have heard a couple of names so far and um, do you happen to remember any of them Sky that Sure, we've got Of Glenn, Mm -hmm. and uh, I think there's a couple other ones in here. Of Warren, Mm -hmm. I think, is another one that we hear. Um, Those are the names of the handmaids. Um, Actually, the term handmaids is not used in the section either. Yeah, not really. Um, What what we are given is, uh, like, the appearance of the handmaids that we don't yet know are are called handmaids. Uh, We know what they wear. Um, but yeah, we don't really know a whole lot about them yet. And so something, so you, you noted, uh, some names that we had of Glenn and of Warren. Um, so if you don't know anything about this book, uh, that's really a great point to start on. (laughs) Why are these, why are these women named of Glenn and of Warren? Um, at first I'm like, are these like weird Germanic names that I'm just not familiar with? And then as they d- sort of, as Margaret Atwood drops more of these names for the handmaids uh, into the book, it's clear that these, uh, like their names have been made to be like of and then a man's name. Um, and it's not clear whether that is like their father's name or like their 
owner's name because they're kind of like slaves, maybe? It's very unclear in this first section. And that's quite astute because I'll tell you that you are right. Uh the, the really... Wait, I, I did. I said two different things. Which one is, is right? Uh, the, the the latter. I think you said that they they seem like slaves. Oh yes. Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, if they're not like literally slaves, they're certainly like slaves in all but name. Right. Exactly. Um. I mean, the best way to think about it is to put the word property before one of these women's names. Um, property of Warren or property of Glenn. Um. So, that's as much. I mean. Not not quite as much, I, I guess I should say, but that's quite a bit of um, of of the agency and person and well, I guess lack of agency that 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 we have these women in. These women all had names of their own, very own in the before times, mm-hmm. um, which is alluded to. But we get some names like Myra, and in fact, the first section night ends with them sort of surreptitiously exchanging names with one another, you know, in the dark at night. You know, names like Alma, Janine, Dolores, Myra, June. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the the regular women's names that we would uh that we would expect. And so they talk about the in this novel the before times or the time before and i mean like the before times and stuff is is kind of like a trope in dystopian fiction and post-apocalyptic fiction and it's like i i wonder if this is where it comes from like i don't know of any novel that sort of like explicitly calls on the before times but my uh, you know, my knowledge of post-apocalyptic fiction is is admittedly limited. Yeah, uh, I have to admit that mine is as well. But certainly, yeah, there there's there's always a call to the before that is separated from the now. However, throughout the be- the beginning, um, we we do have glimpses from the narrator and uh, through the narrator from some other characters about what it was like before. The, the the current situation that they're in um they, they're not very clear but we do have sort of f- like almost flashbacks like distant memories of of things that would happen before um our narrator makes mention of uh is it luke yeah yep luke her uh husband mm-hmm. who might still be out there somewhere or at least she holds out hope right sort of maybe right so that gives us the idea that this, the before times were not in quite such a distant past. Right. They're in living memory and all of these women who are now handmaids sort of remember them. On the other hand, even in the flashbacks to the before times, it doesn't seem like it's a world we would be that familiar with. Like, it doesn't seem like, you know, this book was published in the 80s and um, at times it really seems like it is... Um, dated like it it feels like a dystopian future that still feels like the 80s mm-hmm. um margaret atwood is not really attempting to do sort of like technological science fiction she's not attempting to to imagine like what will modern life be like from like a technological perspective in the future this is purely a sort of like political dystopia right right and in fact it's really referred to more as speculative fiction rather than science fiction yeah and even though they so even though in some of these flashbacks it just sounds like people hanging out in the 80s or like the mid 20th century uh the mid to late 20th century and yet 
clearly it's not the past that we're familiar with. Clearly the changes that have resulted in this society were already in motion at, you know, during the narrator's, you know, before times with Luke. This book starts with a, um, oh, this is where I, I lose all of my literary cred. <laughs> What's it called when there's a bunch of quotations in the front of a work of literature? Uh, is that an, uh, oh shoot, ep- ep- no, not epithet. An um, epigraph. Epigraph, yeah. Right? I think it's an epigraph, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, okay. Don't add us, Twitter people, if we're wrong. <laughs> um, so there's a few epigraphs uh, in this novel. Um, the first one is from the book of Genesis, which is a sort of like, uh, it, you know, it's about Rachel and Jacob and it's very much uh, topical to the sort of like action of the book. Uh, the second is from Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal, um, which is uh, a kind of like, it's an interesting choice. But the third one, which I was puzzling over and I wanted your opinion on, Katie, is a Sufi pro- proverb that says in the desert there is no sign that says thou shall not eat stones and i wondered what you made of that that uh it's it's funny you mentioned that because uh as i was reading i totally meant to look up that proverb and then i didn't but like i couldn't even really get a read on what that was supposed to mean right i i don't know it, it, my my instinct at first is that when you are accustomed to your own circumstances you're not given any reason to think outside of them, I guess. It, wait, the implication being that if you tried to eat stones, that would like work? I, no, but like, I, I mean, or no, you just, you just know not to eat stones. Oh, right. No one has to tell you not to eat stones. You just know not to eat stones. Right. Okay. So maybe that has to do with like, you know, the behavior of the narrator and the other women in this, in this novel is so prescribed by the societal constraints and the threat of violence that they don't like have to ever be told what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe that's what that's getting into. Well, um, but a- a- another interpretation though, is that you sh- I mean, you shouldn't need a sign that says don't eat stones to know not to eat stones in the desert. So maybe you also shouldn't need a sign that says don't treat women like property in order to know not to treat women like property. Oh, interesting. So that's something I maybe will return to throughout the novel is uh, how does this Sufi proverb relate to the novel? Yeah. Um, so a couple of things that you'll note uh, as like the narrative style of this book is it's pre- it's presented as basically our narrator who we still don't know her name (laughs) um our narrator's thoughts and there are certainly flashbacks you'll notice um the the very first part night is uh written in past tense and it's clearly a flashback and then the next section is uh seems to be present yeah i want like what did you make of the the sort of structure of the novel because it's it's broken into these alternating long and short sections and the short sections are all called night and um the 
the narrator seems like she's writing a diary or she's writing a novel, um, but she's not. She's not allowed to write or have writing implements and reading even seems forbidden um like all of the signs have had the the words removed mm-hmm. um, and the uh their currency has pictures on it because yeah women are not supposed to be able to read or write right gives, which gives is them... like it's it's obvious that our like the narrator and probably the other handmaids all do know how to read and write but they're not allowed to right it's been forbidden um and so it's weird that this sort of has a structure like, you know, we've talked about structure a lot, both uh, in Cloud Atlas and, and when you guys were, were doing Talking Tolkien, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a very conscious structure to have these long and short sections. Um, and it feels at some points like a diary or an epistolary novel, not really an epistolary novel, it's not writing to anybody, but like a diary type uh, narrative. And yet... That's obviously not the case. Right, because supposedly she's she is not allowed. But she even says, so at, at the very end of our reading for this week, she oh, says, yeah. a story is like a letter, dear you, I'll say. So it, it is as though she's um, wanting to write to the reader. Yeah, this section at the end sort of adre- directly addresses uh, this issue in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the narrator says she's remembering sort of how she got into this situation um, and some traumatic events from her past. And she says, I would like to believe this is a story I'm telling. I need to believe it. I must believe it. Those who can believe that such stories are only stories have a better chance. This is like a part of the theme that, that the narrator wants to escape from reality and limit her access, especially emotional access to reality as a means of Mm -hmm. self-preservation. And so she's basically talking about her story as a story rather than as her life, because if it's a story, she can pretend that it has an end, right? And and a narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. A story is like a letter, dear you. You can mean more than one. You can mean thousands. I um I actually was wondering like what do they do with that when it's in translations into languages uh in which there's a difference between a singular and plural you, which is to say most languages other than English. Oh yeah, I wonder. Uh, because it I mean like this novel is is widely translated. Um, so I yeah I was just wondering like how they would address that. That would be a fun thing to explore. I'll have to get I'll have to like get my hands on a copy of this in French perhaps and see see how it's translated. Yeah, that would be cool. Maybe um, you and Lauren can can geek out over a French language <laughs> translation of this. That would be fun. Um, but yeah, I mean th- there are several instances in this where where was it i was just flipping through a couple of pages and you know the narrator makes um comments uh that very much reflect on her her status oh oh the, she talks about the difference between lie and lay this is the second night section and like you said mm-hmm. that the 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 shorter night sections seem vastly different from the day sections um during the day basically we uh, we learn that the handmaids pretty much are only allowed outside to like do their 
shopping or chores or whatever that they're supposed to do and then the night is kind of her own time and this is when she's really sitting and thinking um she talks about the difference between lying and laying and being passive and active uh yeah this is uh the difference between lie and lay lay is always passive even men used to say i'd like to get laid (laughs) though sometimes they said i'd like to lay her all this is pure speculation i don't really know what men used to say (laughs) i had only their words for it um which is i i guess another hint that like even in the time before it was you know this this process was still happening and um and the narrator's access to like like men's the the like space of men in the media for instance was like highly curtailed Mm -hmm. um there's a section in this in this uh night section there's a uh, a memory where she attends a bonfire in the park with her mother where they're burning pornography. Oh, um, yeah. And, uh, and you know, she was a small child in that, um, in that flashback. So, uh, yeah, this, these things, at least the social aspects, if not the sort of, like, totalitarian control seems to have gone back a long way right which is i mean no small commentary on the society that we know today in the desert there is no sign that says thou shalt not eat stones here it is this is the first paragraph of chapter two or i'm sorry the second paragraph of chapter two but actually you know from the from the beginning this whole first part of chapter two she's describing the decor um, the decor of her room, which is, uh, there's a rug on the floor, oval, of braided rags. This is the kind of touch they like, folk art, archaic, made by women in their spare time, from things that have no further use, a return to traditional values. Waste not, want not. I am not being wasted. Why do I want? This is, I feel like, a direct commentary on like people's tastes for like folk art and Americana and like old timey furnishing like tastes and things like that. It's like this uh, romanticized ideal that people have of the good old days, right? Exactly. Exactly. Like it's like, Oh, what a, what an adorable quaint rug. And it's like, yo, slaves made that rug. Yeah. Like, I think that's the point that, that Margaret Atwood is trying to make here. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, as as we've noted, she's she's writing this in in the 80s. And um, so a, a lot of uh, the po- like the politics of the time, um, like abortion had just become legal. Um, and it, like women's rights were kind of, I mean, n- not to say that they aren't now, but women's rights were one of the really large struggles at the time. And at the same time, there was a, you know, a wave of conservatism, uh, you know, both political, uh, you know, this was the age of Ronald Reagan, but I think especially cultural, uh, that was a, a, you know, a backlash against the radicalism of the 60s and 70s, in which, you know, this exact kind of decor that she's describing here became... uh, 
fashionable um at least in you know parts of america in the 1980s like i i mean it's almost like this is a strand you know this kind of decor decor certainly still exists and uh, and i don't know if it would necessarily all be like bad or problematic but um i can remember as a young child not too far away from the time of the writing of this novel there were a lot more like crocheted roosters and like <laughs> uh you know like plaid uh like americana patterns and things in people's homes oh absolutely <laughs> When the angels roll, roll the stone, they roll the stone What strikes me about this novel is to, it's a very dire and very bare and very bleak world that Margaret Atwood is describing, and yet her descriptions of it are so beautiful. Even though the things she's describing are so ugly and so boring. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that's she, she certainly has a knack for for describing, and that's something that uh, any, anyone in who had had has joined us here from Talking Tolkien will uh, get a kick out of because that's one aspect of Tolkien's writing that is one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, the. Um, even just in that beginning uh, of this second section, um, just the the surroundings of our narrator's room, it's very rich. It's so visual, even though the things that are being described are so visually boring. And plain, yeah, yeah. Right, like, sunlight comes in through the window, too, and falls on the floor, which is made of wood in narrow strips, highly polished. I can smell the polish. I don't know. Like you can, you, you can, you you can feel like you're in this room. It's a it's a boring room. There's nothing exciting about it. But yeah. But nonetheless, uh, the the imagery of it is quite rich. Mm-hmm. And and so I you know it's. I guess this is one of the ways that Margaret Atwood is bringing us into this world. Um, this world isn't fanciful or captivating or exciting the way that the worlds of cloud atlas were the way that the worlds of tolkien are the way that like you know science fiction usually is and so instead this world like sucks it's the worst yeah um and it's not even like it's not even like a you know in uh in cloud atlas we had the world of sanmi 451 which was a very bleak dystopian world but that was so crazy so absurd you know the technology was uh was you know super advanced and there was all this weird slang which i guess comes up here too but this is so not that it's so it's the authoritarian state that we could have had 30 years ago not the authoritarian state that we'll have in 130 years right There are very clearly several references to the way that the subjugation of women is enacted in this world. And even though we're, we're still not really given um, a full 
understanding of what's going on, what has happened, and what what the state really is. We just get it peppered here and there. There's a line. So she's talking to uh, Cora and Rita, who they are called Marthas, and so handmaids are not really supposed to be friends with Marthas. Marthas are like domestic servants. Right. They're they're like maids and cooks and things, and it's implied that uh, the Marthas, at least in the narrator's home, are women of color while she is a white woman. Although that's not made super explicit. Right. Right, um, but yeah, it's during this conversation, and uh, we get this line: "Fraternize means to behave like a brother." Luke told me that he said there was no corresponding word that meant to behave like a sister. So, just as like the the women don't really have names for themselves that are individual names, they're given these, um, uh, well, not not all women, but the uh, the handmaids at least are are given these like property names yeah there's this reference to there's there's no word for how to behave like a sister yeah i think like in a manner like reminiscent of orwell this society controls its people by limiting language and i guess this relates to uh our proverb about the the stones in the desert the narrator controls herself by limiting the language she uses and thinks about and and says. Yeah, and she's not even given language to to use. Right. This is a very uh, do not speak unless spoken to world. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a great section in which she's talking with the commander's wife. So the commander's wife says to her, "I want to see as little of you as possible. I expect you feel the same way about me." I didn't answer as a yes would have been insulting, a no contradictory. And so, you know, in this way and a million other ways, the narrator is sort of forced into silence. Right. Because no matter what her opinion, it would be wrong. Yes. Or expression. Or expression. Mm-hmm. Right. Even if even if it's not an opinion she genuinely ha- holds, um, you know, there isn't room for expression. Right. There's this great... Um, okay, so uh, she's talking about their their clothing, which I mentioned earlier. So the handmaids all wear red, right? Um, and uh, so this is while she's out shopping um, during this section. And she's talking about their, their clothing, which, of course, are called habits. And she says a good word for them. Habits are hard to break. Um, and then she moves on to, she talks about uh, this place, Lilies of the Field, and she says it used to be a movie theater. And then she talks about where they would show movies, like a, or a Humphrey Bogart festival, and movies with actresses like Lauren Bacall or Catherine Hepburn. Women on their own making up their minds. They wore blouses with buttons down the front that suggested the possibilities of the word undone. These women could be undone or not. They seemed to be able to choose. And then she says, we seemed to be able to choose then. We were society dying said aunt lydia of too much choice so what do you make of that this novel continues to surprise me with how close to what we would describe as like the modern day it is you know i think one of the things that makes this a sort of more scary novel than uh the world of sanmi 451 from cloud atlas is that Sanmi 451 was a sort of complete society it was like 1984 mm-hmm. um you know it's this, uh, you know, totalitarian society, but it's sort of fully formed. This is not, you know, there's still, everyone still remembers the times before. Everyone still remembers the time when you could see, you know, Lauren Bacall and Catherine Hepburn on TV or on in, in a movie theater. 
And it's uh, disturbing to think that these women who do know how to read and write, who do remember, uh, you know, Humphrey Bogart and uh, and Lauren Bacall on the movies, um, who who did have husbands, it's disturbing to see how totally they are controlled by this society. Mm-hmm. And it's also just kind of hauntingly tangible. Yeah, Margaret Atwood's prose is so visual. Right. When, you know, even just like name dropping Humphrey Bogart or Lauren Bacall film and, and you know, Audrey Hepburn or Audrey Hepburn, Catherine Hepburn, not the same person, <laughs> not even related. Um, but, uh, you know, even just making mentions to that, it conjures up such concrete images, even if you're not super familiar with those films, I think, of the kind of, you know, black and white, sumptuously textured uh images it's it's creepy it's creepy and then i mean and there's even uh where is it and like there's a reference to like this may not seem normal now but you'll get used to it yeah well because this process is still happening and they at one point they even say like no one really knows how this is going to shake out as far as whether i think it's it's um the narrator is talking about whether they go in the front door or the back door. Mm-hmm. And and she says, like, no one really knows. Like, you go in the front door the first day and then after that use the back door. But, like, at some point they're going to have to make a decision and it'll be all front doors or all back doors. And that's just, like, we're, they're still figuring that out. Um, and so it's, like, it's it's amazing how much control they have before they figured everything out, you know? Mm -hmm. But of course that's how it has to happen, right? Like, you know, if you're going to make a 1984, if you're going to make a Sanmi 451, you need there, you know, that's the last step. But, you know, in all of the steps leading up to that, you still got to control everyone. Um, I think, there was something that I wanted to make note of that I completely forgot. So we hadn't really talked about the function of the handmaids, which, um, we, you know, we've talked about their names uh, that basically uh, indicate that they're property of some man. And then there is a conversation. So Cora says... Um, Cora's talking about like how she could do the narrator's work but only if she hadn't gotten her tubes tied so this clearly indicates that the work of the handmaids is sexual in nature or reproductive in nature well and then there's the scene when they're at when they're in town doing shopping where the pregnant woman Janine um arrives and sort of causes a scene right a minor scene right and they're all kind of fascinated with her and it, it also seems to indicate that like this is kind of a rarity and a special thing yeah it seems like we're in a society where for whatever reason it's difficult to produce children and so this is all part of some like system of producing children i guess right that's built into this um just overall subject subjugation of of women there's a lot of red in this section um, uh-huh. along with the visuals there's a lot of there's the the red dresses that the handmaids wear are talked about extensively they're sort of long and billowy 
um, in the paperback version that we have, there's an illustration of them on the cover, um, and they seem, you know, like they're described as habits, which is not a bad description. You know, they seem like they're sort of like full body coverings. Um, yeah. But then we also get the red of the tulips that are growing in the commander's wife's garden, um, which are, I mean, in, in a certain sense, they're like the habits, but turned upside down, you know? They're mm -hmm. uh, they're the, sort of the same shape, the same bright red color, and just e just even the description of the habits um, is so fitting. So uh, it says um, everything except the wings around my face is red, the color of blood which defines us. The skirt is ankle length, full, gathered to a flat yoke that extends over the breast. The sleeves are full. The white wings too are prescribed issue. They are to keep us from seeing, but also from being seen. Yeah, they have, like, blinders on, like you would put on a horse or something like that. Um, yeah, the, it it says, like, red, the color of blood, which defines us, right? And, I, you know, I guess that's, like, menstrual blood because these women are supposed to be childbearers. Um, but also, I guess, like, the bloodshed in childbirth. And, I don't know, maybe there are other valences for that one that we'll understand later on but there's also the blood of the hanged man that she sees we haven't talked about this episode but there's an episode where in this section where she um sees several hanged people um who have been you know executed by hanging and then put on public display and they have you know white uh, bags over their heads but one of them has had blood come out of their mouth and you know she describes in sort of gory detail this like red smile of blood on his face that's a that's a nice image so lots of red in, in the handmaid's tale so we'll see if that continues or if or what or how that develops right well and uh other colors too because uh so the marthas all wear green um, and the wives, what color do the wives wear? They, they wear blue and their daughters wear white. Blue, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, so this is, I mean, it's, it's clear that there's like a caste system within this society. Yeah. And everyone wears different colors. It's like the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. <laughs> Did, did you have any sort of uh, quotes of the week? Uh, there was one. I, I think I mentioned most of them, but I think there was one. It's in this um, middle section, this shopping section. And it's just this sh very short statement about the Republic of Gilead. And it's, uh, doctors lived here once, lawyers, university professors. There are no lawyers anymore, and the university is closed. And I think that that perfectly sums up uh, what we, the little that we know so far about this society. Um, if if there are no lawyers anymore, then there is no one to defend the innocent. Uh, and if the university is closed, then there is no uh, kind of safe haven for free thought. Or yes, or uh, a center to generate knowledge. Right. Um, it, and interestingly, she does not say what happened to the doctors. It is only later in the section that it's revealed that doctors are sort of summarily rounded up and executed, like just on virtue of being doctors. Right. My favorite 
uh, sec part of this section um, is in early chapter three when she's describing the, the scarves that the commander's wife knits for the angels, which are like soldiers. Oh, yeah. Uh, at the front lines. Um, the narrator says, I can hardly believe the angels have a need for such scarves. Uh, and then goes on to describe the scarves and then says, Sometimes I think these scarves aren't sent to the angels at all, but unraveled and turned back into balls of yarn to be knitted again in their turn. Maybe it's just something to keep the wives busy, to give them a sense of purpose. But I envy the commander's wife her knitting. It's good to have small goals that can be easily attained. And, like, what a powerful inversion. I mean, it's this strong allusion to Penelope, right, in the Odyssey, like, doing her weaving and then unraveling it every night as a way to, like, stave off the suitors and, like, you know, hold out hope. And, like, you know, it's this crazy inversion of it where, you know, the scarves are being unraveled not by Penelope but by the suitors, basically, uh, or by, like, the government um, as, like, I don't know, a method of control, I guess. I don't know. I just thought it was a really powerful image. Yeah. Give the women something to keep them busy, but don't have it amount to anything. Yeah. And I mean, it's amazing over and over again in this novel, the narrator is living in a condition of such depravity that even these absurd things that, you know, are themselves farcical and brutal, like having to knit stupid scarves for soldiers that don't actually go anywhere is like that. That is like the height of luxury and is something she envies. Right. Uh, fun times in the Republic of Gilead. Indeed. And uh, we will find out more about what's going on as we continue. Yeah, next week. Um, I know Lauren, like, really uh, is disappointed she didn't get to talk about this section, so we may return to some of these things next week. Oh, yeah. Do you have any favorite thing of the week you'd like to share, Katie? Um, so I didn't really get have anything new to share, um, but my favorite thing of the week was... Uh, I watched uh, several episodes for, I don't know, the fifth or sixth time of Parks and Rec because I uh, wanted a fun thing to do. And that's always nice and comforting. Yeah, um, absolutely. Did you watch, are you like watching from the beginning or do you pick out your favorites? Uh, I actually just started another watch through. So I'm like about halfway through season one now, once again, I think. Um, Yeah, (laughs) it's just one of those shows. My favorite thing of the week has been uh, chocolate. There's a great podcast called Gastropod. It's about like the history and culture and science of food. Um, and they just put out this great episode about chocolate. Um, and I, uh, uh, Lauren and I have been uh, slowly but surely tasting different single origin chocolates, which is to say chocolates uh, that the cacao that produced them came from like a single farm in a single country. It is so much better than like Hershey's special dark guys. Um, it's a l- it's more expensive, but it's got like five times the flavor. Um, try to see if you can track down some, some really high quality single origin chocolate. Um, Cause it, it'll blow your mind. It's worth it. It's definitely yeah. worth it. 
Yep. And I'm not talking, like, really look for, like, country of origin and, like, single origin. Because there's a lot of, like, fancy chocolates out there that are, like, organic or, like, you know, fair trade. And those are great. But, like, really what you're looking for is the kind of flavor complexity you get when the chocolate just comes from, like, a place. And it's, it's you know, um, it's supposed to bring out the, the specifics of that cacao. And on uh, that and note. And on that incredibly pretentious note. Um, come back with us and delve deeper into this nightmarish novel uh, next week. Where I'm certain they don't have single origin chocolate. Nope, probably not. And if they did, it would be very illegal for our narrator to get anywhere near it. But we'll be back next week. I'm Katie. I'm Sky. Thanks for listening. Uh, now I want chocolate. Enter, enter, enter library loan. Please rate us high, high, high on iTunes. Find us online at illbook.club. On Twitter, we are at illbookcast. Thank you to our generous, smart, beautiful, awesome Patreon donors. We couldn't do it without you. Okay, okay, okay. Back to robot sleep until next week.